Life will present you with people and places to reveal where you're not free. Welcome to The Greatest Stories Never Told. I have someone super special for you today. Peter Crone is known as the Mind Architect. I heard about this guy from so many different people in my network, I had to check him out for myself. I've only sat down with this guy once, and since then, I've looked at just about every part of my life differently, from relationships, to performance, to even hosting this podcast. Your mind is going to explode when you hear what this guy has to share with you. So get excited. Peter Crone is coming up now. Okay, this usually takes me three or four times. You can take as many as you want, my friend. Oh, yeah, get some blood flowing, actually. Today on Greatest Stories of Peter Crone. Fuck! The mind architect. And today he is going to show you what you can do great world's top performers in sports fuck you name it <coughs> every part of my life oh my god that was so good and i started fucking stuttering <laughs> fuck i didn't like that intro no that's not like that. that's all right that's all right what is wrong with me today kevin i swear this has never happened this is so weird it's a good omen it's a good omen it's yeah. i know watch it's gonna be the best podcast ever well, there's, there's significance around it, right? So whenever we struggle, and this might itself be like educational for people. So whenever we're struggling with something, it's only because our brain is putting a little bit more importance on something, mm. which means that we care, which is beautiful. So again, I don't want to be leading the witness here or putting words in your mouth, but maybe, you know, there's, there's, there's some genuine excitement about what could be happening here, yes. which is creating a little extra significance, right? Yes. Which is beautiful. So yes. what that's actually also helping us look at is where is there an absence of trust in your life, mm -hmm. right? To go, okay, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I certainly am excited and that's why I want to get it right, right? Which is the little boy in both of us or the little kid in everybody. It's like, oh, I don't want to mess it up, right? You know? So... But actually, if we can just let go and trust that whatever's supposed to unfold will do so naturally, mm -hmm. that's part of your opportunity. Yes. And this is going to be such a great story to tell how I had Peter at my podcast and then he coached me <laughs> through the intro that I fucked yeah. up six or seven times. I realized what it is. Yeah. It's because you were so epic on the podcast that I just listened to. I have feeling that pressure that this one has to be just as epic. There you and go. then hearing that it was Aubrey Marcus's number one episode. Well, wow. fuck, man, this has got to deliver. I don't know? know if it's his number one, but he said it was so. certainly one of the most powerful conversations. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so it's like the guy, you know, I work with a PGA Tour guy, and let's say he goes out there and shoots a 61. Yeah. Or God forbid, break 60 and shoots a 59. The next day, there's this expectation, right? So what yeah. happens is the brain gets stuck in time. And as soon as we're stuck in time, meaning past or future, now we're actually not fully present. Mm. And that's all that's absent right now is that you've got the memory of this great podcast you listen to, which I'm right. flattered to hear. And then the expectation for where this might be going, both of which pull you a little bit away from where you are, which is sitting in this chair in front of me. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So we're going to keep this in the show. Yeah, for We're just sure. going to keep this in yeah. because I want the people at home to realize the yeah. depth of your work and the yeah. power of this. So thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. We're learning already with Peter. <laughs> yeah, awesome, man. So what's really fascinating to me is that you didn't set out to become the mind architect. No. Right? You started no. off 
training in the Palisades? Yeah. In the weight room? Yeah. I mean, and prior to that, you know, just working in a bar and prior to that, like, I mean, I've had various iterations of my career, but I would say sort of the pivotal ones, yes, were doing a little bit of fitness training combined with some Pilates and yoga that I had as sort of the, the toolkit at my disposal. And then, um, then it, was a natural progression, very similar to what I was just sharing with you, is trusting how things unfold. I could never have foreseen that that was what was going to happen, and certainly the last couple of years, and how things have really accelerated, you know, in the mind architect realm, and the demand that's now out there, which is very flattering, but no, there was no way I could have predicted that. Yeah, so what was your childhood like? Were you raised in America, or overseas, or... Uh... You hear a little bit of accent here. Yes. Um, or I grew up in England. Okay. A friend of mine, he's hilarious. Um, he would, you know, from, from England, he came over here and uh, this woman, uh, we were at a hairdresser's, he wanted to get a haircut. And um, this, uh, this cute old woman from America said, oh my God, I love your accent. <laughs> he was just super straight British guy. He's like, I don't have an accent. I speak English. <laughs> so so i appreciate the accent yeah comment, but american women that. love accents yes yes, yes. the women are going to rate this show higher than the rest of them for that reason alone right now works for me but what comes next is going to be even better i promise okay <laughs> um so to get back to your question grow, uh, grew up in southeast england mm -hmm. a little town of dover um spent um the majority well i spent all of my childhood there and then i went away to uh college so which was in still in england but further north so um that was you know until sort of early 20s and then i came straight here to southern cal to visit a friend who had actually met um on the east coast i was coaching tennis um at a kids camp in upstate new york Okay. And so we became quick friends and he moved to California. You know, he always wanted to pursue film. And so I went back at the time to finish a thesis. I was doing my master's back in, in the UK. And then when I was done with that, um, I came out to visit him. And uh, as they say, Hotel California, you can check in, but you can never leave. That's for damn sure. Yeah. <laughs> so still here. Awesome. So were you at all studying personal growth <clears throat> along the way when you were like, um, like as a kid, you know, because yeah, like. I could almost imagine you being raised in a monastery with some of the wisdom <laughs> that you dropped on me in just the few yeah. short times we hung out. That's very kind, maybe in a former life. Um, I, I did even at college, yes, yeah, start to get into a little bit of the investigation of what it means to be human, these sort of bigger questions that I think everybody at some point, you know, gets to uh, inquire about, like, what's the meaning of life? Who am I? Why am I here? Maybe not at the ripe age of 18, 19, when I was sitting under a tree with a buddy at college, but that's what we would do. And I found some notes, actually, I was going through my, my uh, uh, garage just doing a big clean out. And um, I found some notes from back then, <laughs> which was pretty incredible, you know, mm. to look at some of the writing that was coming through me, you know, sort of late 90s, mid 90s, and um, about the nature of consciousness. So clearly it was, it was part of my makeup. I had no idea what it would actually end up becoming. But I was always fascinated with just human behavior. Why do people struggle? And I think also, given my background, I was very sensitive to people's suffering. Um, uh, sort of whether you call me an empath or just a sensitive guy, I, I really founded my nature to be love. And I didn't like to see anybody suffer. Even when I was at um, 
you'd call it secondary school here. Uh, we call it a secondary school here, like middle school. Like whatever. a junior high school. Junior high school. Okay. Yeah. The kid that was introduced to the to the school as a latecomer, you know, maybe they, the family transferred mm -hmm. like cities or whatever it was. And he was or she was the one kid by themselves. I was always, I would always want to go over and make friends, you know, because okay. I yeah. felt, I felt the pain of that isolation that mm -hmm. I would assert is why humans suffer as we look through this lens of separation. So when you viscerally see it, you, especially in a, in a schoolyard environment where kids can be pretty vicious, you know, um, it would almost bring me to tears the fact that I would see a human being, especially a child by themselves, feeling the absence of any kinship or any friendship. Mm. So um, that was clearly sort of part of my DNA from a young age. So now I just, you know, do it as a profession. Yeah, fascinating. Bring, bring love and care to people, yeah. So were you outgoing as a kid? No, I was incredibly shy. Mm. <laughs> but would you go? Would you actually go over to the... Oh, in that case, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. No, I mean, growing up, I was sort of the quintessential kid who would hold on to his dad's leg, you know, um, and I was an only child. So there was no that that didn't really get offset. I think when you have siblings, there's sort of like, you know, you can get that energy of dismissive sort of parent energy sometimes, which I think is healthy at one level. Like mm -hmm. you have to learn to fend for yourself. Yeah. But because I was the only one that had all of the focus, um, which, you know, I think is that only child syndrome. Like I didn't I didn't need to really have that spine at that time, you know, because everything was taken care of and mm -hmm. I was very, very loved and held. So uh, I was predominantly quiet, but I still felt very strongly, especially in those scenarios that I was just describing, like I would go over and just introduce myself or say hi to whoever it was. And it wasn't like it was every week. I mean, kids aren't getting transferred all the time. Sure, sure. I definitely remember like, you know, three or four times where a new kid would come into a school and I just want to make them feel like they had a you know, a sense of belonging uh, and someone they could talk to. Yeah. So yeah. I guess I started my profession at a very young age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Now, I, I heard you share on another podcast, you lost a parent at a young age. Yes. Do you feel that's what maybe gave you more of a sense of compassion for other kids? I'm sure it did. I mean, I actually both passed. Uh, my mom at the youngest age when I was seven. So, uh, I mean, at that age, I don't think any seven-year-old can process what it means for a parent to die. Yeah. Uh, I think you feel it. I'm sure there was some sort of unresolved emotional experience there, which I've done a lot of work on. Um, but yes, that for sure gave me a glimpse of what it means to really suffer and to be by oneself, mm. which I think then made me, you know, using the school example, very sympathetic and sensitive to anybody else feeling that. Because as I said, I feel the experience of separation and isolation is probably the quintessential feeling of pain a human can have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just you and your dad then? For a while, and mm. then, then he passed. <laughs> so oh, it, double whammy. Mm. Uh, and I can laugh about it. Like, I don't mean to be crass or cold. Like, I adored my parents. It's just, it's, it's been so long now that I just see it as another part of my, my journey. And, yeah. Um, in ways that I don't fully understand. You know, I live uh, as a trust fund baby. I tell people not that I was left a penny from my parents, but I trust in the universe. And clearly that was the destiny of my parents and myself. So yeah. I don't fight life. You know, I let life do what it, to do what it does. And um, so my mom at seven, my dad at 17. Um, oh, wow. And that was probably a bit more traumatic because he wasn't sick. He was... Um, 
I think he was only 48 at the time, 49, which is crazy. Uh, wow. My mum was mid-30s, so you think about that. Wow. Yeah, um, but he went to work and never came back because he was on a shipping disaster, so. Oh, man. Yeah, so that was, you know, that's, that's one of those uh, out of left field, and that definitely shook up our whole neighborhood because a lot of people had passed on that. It was a boat that worked, um, that went from Dover to Calais in France and Zeebrugge okay. in Belgium. Mm -hmm. They carry a lot of cargo and people going on vacations and stuff like that. So a lot of lives were affected. Uh, I think over 300 people died uh, during the boat capsized. But anyway. Oh, wow. So then yeah. you found yourself all alone at 17. I was. I had a, uh, I had a step mother. Okay. Uh, she, did, she didn't actually marry my dad. Uh, she's what's called a common law wife in, in England. So she moved in. Okay. So there was some sort of um, support. Uh, okay. But I was 17, you know, and uh, whether you like it or not, at that age, we're sort of um, told to take care of ourselves somewhat. So I, I had a year or two and then I went to college and then that was pretty much um, me on my lonesome, as they say, and had to figure it out. Gotcha. And how old were you when you moved out to California? Uh, I came out here the first time. First time never really left, but um, I was I was around 24. Okay. 23, 24. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And then you're teaching tennis, bartending yeah. at night, living yeah. the good life. I was having a great time. I was, the tennis was a few years previous, which is when I was up in upstate New York um, coaching kids. And I oh, got okay. to meet a good friend of mine at the time who lived on the East Coast, but he knew that he always wanted to come out to uh, California to make feature films. So I then went back and finished my master's, as I said, and... Um, I came out to visit because I'd never been to the west coast of California. I traveled up and down the east coast a little bit. But I came out here and, and the synchronicity of things was such that he had decided with his roommate from college that they were going to make this film. But they were kind of all over the place. Like one of them sort of was writing the screenplay and then my friend had some pretty good resources with his family in terms of um, getting some money together. But there wasn't much organization. And I was sort of that typical Virgo guy and I like to keep shit tight and keep it together. So I came on board within about 10 days of having arrived in California and we suddenly, three 24-year-olds or whatever, decided to make this low-budget feature film. Mm. Um, so that, that I did initially. And you were going to be an actor in it or no, a producer? No, no, okay. No. Do not want me to Because that's why most people come out to California. Yes. No, 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 okay. no. I, I, was not, I was not familiar with the American dream at all. I was just purely curious to see the West Coast. Gotcha. Um, so I, I literally was sort of doing more the, the COO type role. Like I was keeping everything together. So it was not at all for me to be in the film. It, it was kind of hilarious because the three of us, by virtue of the fact we had no money, it was a very low budget, we would have to occasionally be extras in the background. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, putting on fake mustaches and shit like that. Didn't have to get that bad, but <laughs> okay. yeah, we were just basically filling in spaces, okay. you know. Um, but that was an amazing experience to have to go through, despite the fact the film was by no means successful. I think we paid back maybe 70, 80% of the investors. I mean, we made Not the bad. whole film for like a couple hundred grand, you know, okay. 24 year olds. It was more a education <coughs> and experience. But then, yes, after that is what led to, first of all, working in a bar, um, just for a summer, it was like three months. It was hysterical, uh, great times. And then um, a buddy of mine who actually lived in the rent control apartment I was in, he said, I don't know anyone who knows more about the body than you. And he happened to be the head manager of all of these trainers at a, a club up in uh, Pacific Palisades. He said, if you get certified, I'll give you a job. 
And so I took this two-week sort of National Academy of Sports Medicine certification. Um, and then sure enough, he gave me a job and I sort of became, in terms of sales, the most successful trainer within the first month. And um, then that led to, to other brighter things. But that, that's and the training. So, oh, gotcha. Okay. So was that the accent? And the women that was that totally, to sign that up was the, the only the reason sessions? I got the is that, job. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Right, what, Nothing to do seller? with my uh, Bachelor of Science in yeah, Exercise okay, Physiology. Okay, okay. No, okay. No, no, I just wanted to make sure that purely that was, coincidental. That was clear. Yeah, yeah. I could yeah. Okay, could cool. recite the Krebs cycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, what was your key though to becoming the top sales trainer there? Because that's pretty fascinating. That you just walked in there and yeah, the and they guy. were like, I mean, at that time in the club, I would say there was twenty-five to thirty other trainers, you know, who were quote unquote veterans. I think it was purely. A combination of enthusiasm and ignorance, right? Like you don't know what you don't know, so you don't know what to avoid or you don't know the fears, mm. right? And I think this is why kids are so inspiring because they don't know what's not possible yet. Yeah. Um, so I think it was also the fact that it was the first time I was actually earning some money because making the film, I was, you know, peanuts. It was just whatever savings I had, which was nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember a treat for me was eating pasta but then I would add with red sauce, and the, the treat was a 59 cents can of bumblebee tuna, you know, um, which might explain my mercury poisoning. I'm kidding. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, it sounds like it was worth that? it. Sounds like, like it was worth it. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. It was, that was a treat back in the day. But then I think, to go back to your question, the enthusiasm, why I did so well at the gym is I literally, I looked back, I found a training manual where I would keep my schedule of clients. And, um, it was not uncommon for me to three or four days a week to have 13 clients at an hour a time. So you did 13 the math. In like 13 hour days. Of 13 boom, hour boom. days wow. training people. But you were just stacking the cash, so you, you must Yeah, have I mean, it. at the time, yeah. you know, stacking 45 bucks an hour, whatever it was, was yeah, training, well, but it's still, good. Yeah, for yeah. a 25-year-old, that was pretty no cool. Doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was there. My first client was around 6 o'clock in the morning. I would take, you know, a little break wherever I could and then obviously a bite to eat at lunch. But otherwise, I was just with people all day. And I think two or three of them, from what I remember, always wanted me to work out with them. So, Mm. I mean, I was kicking ass, you know, both in terms of my career at the time. I was in the best shape of my life. Um, It was just, I just was feeling alive. How was the tan? I, I had a pretty good tan for a guy from, you know, from England. Yeah, that's important. Who's living in California. Yeah, yeah, okay. Might have gone through that, like burning stage yeah you gotta break through that you know it's like the push that makes a difference i had to sort of assimilate to the environment but yeah so that that was that was just one of those times where i really started to get a paycheck for a 25 year old doing something that was really changing people's lives i was getting incredible results in short term i had a wealth of background just because of my exercise physiology background in um my under my uh, undergrad uh, and then i did you know extracurricular studies national academy of sports medicine i just love to learn you know i was a perpetual student still am a perpetual student and um i just had so much uh respect for what the body could do and i was just excited to help people transform themselves at that point physically and the results spoke for themselves and that's what kept bringing other people you know to wanting to work with me so it was it was a lot of fun at that time Gotcha. Yeah. And being with all those people, you know, that's a lot of human interaction. Yeah. Are you starting to pay attention to the mind stuff at this point? Or are you just still focused? No, all for on sure. Physical results? I think in ways that maybe I was not quite familiar, like I, it was maybe an unconscious process where 
as I said, even early on, I was very sensitive to what people were going through. And it's very cliche, mm. but it's that stereotypical personal trainer or hairdresser who becomes like your pseudo therapist, right? Point. And you know, the bartender too, right? I guess so. I had some training there too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, um, I became very close with my clients for that reason. I think it's inevitable. You're in a very sort of intimate space, looking at people's bodies, stuff that people might not want to talk about, you know, with other people that they're mm. bringing to your attention because they want to work on. So you develop this sort of intimacy and trust. Um, so yes, there was a lot of conversation. Um, and I think that was in large part why I was successful because I was a good listener. I genuinely cared. I've always thought one of my superpowers is the fact that I really care about people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess in, in one way or another, it was sort of my apprenticeship into uh, bigger and brighter things. <laughs> Amazing. And then yeah. you had what they would call a big break. Yes, know? indeed. <laughs> okay, so yeah. how did that come about? Because I, I love this. You're story. referring to, I'm assuming, like when I got picked by a couple of VIP actors. Yeah, Co so. A couple of people that anyone would die to work with. Yeah, no, it was Looking for fun. a trainer and. Well, yes. Pull um, your name out of a hat. Or? <clears throat> Um, it was a couple of like, I guess, sort of fortuitous things that happened. One, um, the, the general manager at the club, she, she was such a sweet person and she came up to me one day and said, Hey, I've got a couple more clients for you, which at the time was like, okay, great. Let's, let's go bring it on. Like, tell me something I don't already know, you know? And she said, no, these are very special clients. And so I took a beat and she's like, they're from Bob. And Bob, everybody knew he was another trainer in the club. He was Tom Cruise's trainer. Okay. And so he was special relative to us, sort of more um, everyday folk trainer, you know. And uh, so then the penny dropped. She was referring to Tom and Nicole. And it was weird. It was one of those moments where I was not at all phased by it, even though I'm like this kid from England and uh, just new to the world of training. But there was sort of this deep intuition that this was exactly what was supposed to be happening, despite the fact they were creating a pool of trainers, both from the club and then Bob, who was looking for this replacement, he had found trainers, I guess, from other clubs, I don't know. But he, it was incumbent upon him to try and find a replacement, and, and um, I was in that interview pool. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, so that was, um, that was a big turnaround. So I went through four interviews. Um, my fourth interview, sorry, was with Tom. So I okay. had three interviews before I even met Tom, and then... Sort of the rest is history, as I say. I got the I got the gig, and our first job was actually going back to England, which was quite pleasant. So mm. I'd been here by then for a few years, and so to go back as Tom and Nicole's trainer, you know, that was uh, that was pretty fun. And they were doing a movie there. Is that what it was? They were shooting Eyes Wide Shut. At the oh, time amazing! With Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. yeah. And was yeah. your first interview with Tom? Was that a training session, or was he just asking you philosophy? It was. Or? It was a little bit of both. Okay. I mean, uh, amazing guy. Um, became very close to both of them. Have nothing but like incredible memories of uh, I was with them for five years traveling around the world so wow um, yeah he was um, fascinated by my background wanted to know what I knew about exercise but we did we did do a training uh, session he was on the lot um, shooting Jerry Maguire at the time oh okay yeah so, so you went with them from movie to movie around the world yeah yeah exclusively they didn't want me to work with anyone else so amazing yeah it was fun we went to England. We were in Australia for a couple of years for a couple of the Mission Impossible movies, and then uh, Moulin Rouge, and mm. we're in New York. We went to Madrid. Um, yeah, it was pretty special five years. I feel very privileged to have done that um, with such beautiful people, and it certainly opened my eyes to an entirely different way of 
living life yeah <laughs> that i was not familiar with you know growing up in a small village in the southeast kent <laughs> no doubt yeah and then did you get tired of being on the road or did he decide to go a different direction or no i um i think as a precursor to what i'm doing now i sort of had this intuitive understanding that i had a lot more to offer um and i got much more fascinated with the power of the mind and what we might call spirituality and so there was a natural segue you know it's common knowledge tom and nicole obviously went their separate ways and i knew that was sort of on the on the brink of happening mm. and so rather than getting in caught in a tug of war between them um in terms of who stays with who and all of that i love them both dearly and so um i saw you know just a natural exit point that was very organic and um so i just chose to move on and start my own my own thing and where do you go from there? Do you go back to the gym or do you do private practice? I mean, I guess everyone will want you to train them after you have such a high profile now. Yeah. But was training still exciting for you at the time? It was. I mean, it still is. It's still a big part of my life. Okay. I think um, if you're not taking care of your physicality, you know, you've, you've missed a very important uh, memo from the universe, right? Good um, point. So um, I think it's one of those non-negotiables in terms of having an extraordinary life. I mean, it may sound a little harsh, but I'm like, if people aren't working their body, if they're not moving, if they're not taking care of their physicality, then they have no right to complain about their life not working, mm. right? It's like, it's like, if you went up to someone and they're like, well, I want to realize my potential, I want to have more money, I want to have a better relationship, you know, blah, 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 all of the things that humans assert they want. But if they're not sleeping, Right, you'd say, well, how's that working for you? I would put moving and taking care of your body right next to that. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, as I said, it's a non-negotiable. So, so I was still very fascinated. I continue to explore it. I've got extraordinary friends who are into all sorts of like, you know, functional medicine to biohacking to mobility work, and and I find all of that. That's the stuff that I follow on Instagram. It's like I'm incredibly inspired by what people can do with their body. So. I think even though that was not a um, peak, it was it was for sure a peak in my career, but it's not the peak in physical wellness. You know, like I've gone so much further since just doing training and, you know, okay, it was functional training as opposed to sitting there with a couple of, you know, individual dumbbells. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I continue to explore that, still do. But um, where do I go from there? I, I really recognize the power of, going deeper, which is instead of just transforming somebody's sort of meat suit, transform who they are. What's their idea of themselves? That, that was what really then just lit a fire under my butt. Because I, mm. I can remember I was a ski instructor for a minute too. And um, I had these two guys, it's such a powerful memory, who had the same experience skiing. They were, you know, just beyond beginner, sort of intermediate. Um, they had about the same athleticism in terms of their size and they were about the same age. But I can remember one coming down, it wasn't like a crazy slope, it wasn't like a double black or anything like that, but he was so um, apprehensive. But the other guy just kind of went for it, more like a child, like he wasn't yeah. concerned about what could happen. So when, at that point, as I was got nothing to do with their resources, right? Their equipment, mm. their experience. It had everything to do with how the, the future occurred to them. It was all about mindset. And that really was one of those moments where I realized that the thing that's really driving everybody's life is your perspective. Mm. And so I was like, wow, if I could help people shift perspective 
that then completely shifts their life versus most people are trying to change the circumstances of their life. Right, trying to change the mountain. Yeah, which is exhausting, futile, yes. and at the end of the day, it's a perpetual sort of journey that never gets fulfilled, right? Because mm -hmm. it's sort of, there's always something else to fix. But right. for me, where I got to is that point where I realized there was nothing external that was really the source of, the, the author of my experience. It was all how I was relating to it. It was all in the way that I interacted with life that created my experience. Mm. Most people, it's common, you know, if, if it's common sense, rather, if you think that you feel the way you feel because of what's going on around you, whether it because of someone or something, then ipso facto, I'm going to try and control everything and everyone because they are the, the genesis of how I feel, right? That makes sense, right? But then I realized, well, wait, is it because of them and that that I feel the way I feel or is it because of the way I'm relating to it? That I have some domain over versus trying to control my environment, which is why I think most people's adrenals are shot and they're exhausted, you know? So mm -hmm. versus like, oh, can I find peace regardless of what's going on around me? That to me is the most successful person. So true, yeah. I yeah. feel like it's so true in relationships. Also, everyone wants their partner to change. Yes. And they want to change their partner. Yeah. And then they'll focus on that. How do I get my partner to change? How can I get my <clears throat> wife to do something different, my husband, yeah. without thinking about their reaction and the one thing that they can change, their perspective yeah. for themselves? And I think, you know, I have so much reverence for women and particularly mothers. Um, you know, I was not always this privy to how extraordinary women are took a while for me to even wake up and realize, holy shit, you know, relative to guys, I think women are so much more in tune, you know, mm -hmm. their, 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 their capacity to feel and also their capacity to endure, like their resilience is ridiculous. You think about childbirth itself, right? So I think women sort of fall into that trap a little bit more than guys because they're really under the impression that that sort of quintessential, oh no, he'll change or the, they see the potential in a partner, whether it's a boyfriend or a spouse or even a brother or a father and um, they're nurturers right so I think for me it was recognizing wait a minute like to, to be able to relate to people the way they are face value for sure I believe in people's potential but uh, to be able to just be okay with everybody where they're at is is liberating both for myself and them there's no demand there's no pressure there's no expectation mm. right yeah and so I think that's where I've helped a lot of gals in relationships who are like hoping for that one day that this guy's potential gets realized and then wonder why they feel totally neglected or you know it's like well you're relating to the idea of this idealized future as opposed to what you actually have in in your house with you you know yeah definitely and not as a judgment but like maybe you want to see your value a little bit more than sort of the aspirations for this one day sort of nirvana that you keep waiting for and yeah. then getting resigned about the fact that it's not showing up. So Yeah, no doubt. So what's the fine line then when it comes to yourself yeah. between, okay, I love myself, but I need to work on myself. Yeah. You know, do you feel those things get conflicted a little bit and some people just beat themselves up a lot and then they, they, a they do for sure because it's sort of the, it's a very ingrained um, idea that who we are is not who we're meant to be. Right. Meaning we're not there yet. And even an expression I'm getting there. Right. Implies that where I'm at is not it. But mm -hmm. if you just look at that subtlety, there's so much um, pressure 
if who I am is not who I'm supposed to be, then I'm constantly trying to forge the idea of who I'm supposed to be. And it creates time, right? To go back to some of the things we were talking about right at the beginning of this, right? So if I'm creating time, which is based in psychology versus chronological time, like sun, you know, comes up and down, right? Which it doesn't, but it looks like it's going up and down. <laughs> so psychological time is where I'm where I'm at, but I'm under the impression based on these deep subconscious beliefs of inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity, that the life I'm actually looking for is in my future. That's just, that's just a common human perspective. Yes. And so there's this chase, right? Even in, like, I, I mentioned this in one of my podcasts, I forgot what it was, but the Declaration of Independence, right? Like at the end, it's like, and the pursuit of happiness, which sounds like amazing. Like, you know, thank the forefathers for like creating that for us. But to me, it's such a disservice because it's creating the idea that my happiness is in the future. Mm. The pursuit of happiness. Yeah. <laughs> what is that implying? Yeah. Right? I'm not happy now. And so I think it's a very subtle distinction, but it's important to recognize that who you are right now is precisely who you are meant to be. Why? Because that's who you are. And if you're interested, you get to explore more facets of yourself. So the way I phrase it is, you are a um, masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. So there's nothing missing while simultaneously I get to explore what's available to me. Where people, I think, miss that is they're under the impression there is something wrong with me. And if I work hard enough and I pursue things in the way that I'm supposed to, I will eventually get to this sort of one day utopia where everything is just ideal. And that to me is the biggest misnomer, which leaves people very unsatisfied today. Mm. So I for sure am an explorer, an adventurer, and I'm constantly looking to um, enhance my experience of myself in life while simultaneously being totally at peace with where I am. Love and that. those things can coexist as far as I'm concerned. So we're really looking at what is the underlying motivation. Are you pursuing something because of lack or are you pursuing something for the pure joy of exploration? Yeah, love that. Yeah. So how did you go then from working in the actual like, you know, body training to mind training? Because I know you've worked mm -hmm. with baseball teams and mm -hmm. NBA players and golfers and show runners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show jumpers and Yeah, yeah show that. jumping. That so was like, unique, you know, did you start just put yourself out there and be like, okay, now I'm going to teach people how to work their mind? Or was it a client that you started off training yeah. them in the gym and then you ended up just being their personal coach or how did that transition happen? Um, no, it was, I think, you know, I was, after the training, I took a little bit of a respite and again, there was, there was sort of a trailer of coming attractions even there, right? I was starting to get more fascinated with the power of the mind, who was showing up to the gym with enthusiasm, who was committed to complying with my suggestions because I wasn't working out with people every day, right? So who was really based on their discipline, which I would assert is much more a mindset, right, than um, just somebody who could push the most amount of weight, but then wasn't complying and they were eating shitty food. So right. I was already early on in the training world getting accustomed to what was really driving the show, which was, again, mindset. So um, after the training, I actually was dating somebody at the time who had always had this aspiration to go to the Sorbonne in Paris, which is a beautiful university. So I went with her, because um, I hadn't been back to Europe for a while, I thought it would be like a nice like change of scenery. And I 
had a club, it's a bit of a long-winded story, but a golf club in the UK that were just launching a new spa. They know that they knew that I'd worked obviously with Tom and Nicole and a handful of other quote unquote celebrities because Tom and Nicole would ask me to help some of their friends or some of their friends were like, oh my God, you look amazing. And they're like, yeah, talk to our guy. He's great. Mm -hmm. So I'd gotten a little bit of press and especially the British tabloids love all of that crap. Oh, gotcha. You know, so um, the club, this golf club and spa in the UK, they asked me to come and do some sessions, coaching sessions. So I would actually go from Paris on the Euro tunnel um, and go every weekend and work with people. And then that started to generate like a little head of steam where people were getting good results based on a shift in perspective. The club did some PR. And um, so that really then started this new career where people were really then seeking me out because people were getting rid of anxiety or they were stopping um, some sort of addictive behavior or relationships were getting healed and all of that stuff. So um, yeah, just it was a natural progression uh, from there. Oh, awesome. And then the, the sports thing really kicked off too. Like mm -hmm. my first athlete was a PJ Tour guy who, um, this is now back um, 2006, 2007, so a long time ago where his average was around a million a year and he'd been a pro for many, many years, over a decade. So um, in our first year together, he went from a million in winnings to 2.2. So, you know, if you're a business and you get a hundred plus percent return, that's pretty impressive. But our second year, he made 3.5. Wow. So that got a lot of people asking questions. So then that opened up this whole sort of portal of athletes, first with golfers, where I had over a dozen guys and girls on the LPGA. And then I met this in incredible friend uh, who was the head athletic trainer at one of the major league baseball teams. And um, that led to a couple of conversations. And then I became sort of accountable for the mindset of these uh, 25 studs in a clubhouse in uh, baseball, which would probably be the last thing I'd ever think of as a Brit that so, I would get involved it, in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, t take us yeah. back to the golf, because I've yeah. heard you say that all the golfers know how to hit the ball. Yeah. But it's what's up here that determines how they hit it. Yes, for So sure. what exactly are you t teaching these guys? Like, how does someone take control over the mind to have that perfect swing? Because that's what it's all about, right? Is yeah. It a form of relaxation or letting go of the stress or is it visualization? Like... Yeah. What is the, the move? What is the magician's secret thing? Um, so, it, I mean, a lot of it is customized to the individual, right? Everybody's okay. got their own sort of uh, deep-seated fears and inadequacies. But there's going to be predominant themes. So, to your point, yes. At that level, when you're a professional, there's nothing, you know, that is, quote-unquote, inhibiting in terms of your actual ability, your talent, right? Everybody can take a 9-iron and hit it 140, 150 yards, whatever they do nowadays. Uh, with a level of precision. If I'm working with like a guy who's a 14 handicap, yes, can I impact him and help him lower his handicap? For sure. But he's also got work to do on his technique. Okay. So the discerning difference for sure, which is why I love working with pro athletes, is what's going on between the ears. Even Ben Hogan, he had a beautiful quote. Um, he said, you know, the most difficult course you'll ever play, referring to golfers, was the six inches between your ears, right? So with that guy, it was about, with any of my athletes, it's about finding freedom. That is my number one product. It is about finding freedom from concern. Because mm. humans are, by design, trying to survive. We want to survive. 
Now, the survival might look like I want to be able to make money to pay rent. It might look like I want to avoid the sickness that is sort of uh, historical in my family lineage. Um, but it's deep in our DNA. We want to survive. So now, whenever there's perceived threat, those survival instincts get heightened, right? And we sort of saw a little bit of that at the beginning of the podcast, right, with yourself, right? Yes. So it's like recognize something great. Yeah. A little too much. Yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with your voice. There's nothing wrong with your ability to articulate. There's nothing, you know, that was absent in terms of your excitement for the conversation we were going to have. But there was the presence of concern. Mm -hmm. So with my athletes, they've got the talent, they've got the equipment, they've got the experience, they've got the passion. But when the brain is in a state of fight or flight, which sort of in terms of the nervous system is a sympathetic response they are actually changing their physiology because they're dumping cortisol and adrenaline, noradrenaline into their system. So now you literally, quite literally, are becoming a different human being by virtue of your chemistry. It mm. would be like, you know, putting somebody behind a steering wheel who's stone cold sober versus somebody who's had a few cocktails. Right? It could be the same person, but you're going to get a different outcome in the way that they perform. Gotcha. So then when they have the, the big purse of money they can win, the crowd all watching, the TV cameras, it starts making a lot of things flow in here that aren't normally there. Yes. Combined with, you don't know what also is going on in the background, which is where I would come in for really more intimate situations where my, maybe somebody's got a parent who's really sick. Mm. Somebody's struggling in their marriage. You know, this was a big thing with my first golfer. Um, you know, stuff that was going on at home that wasn't ideal, that was creating a lot of tension, you know, and then that becomes a vicious cycle where there's, there's this unrest that's creating frustration, which is creating anger, which is creating concern, which is really a reflection of deeper hurt and fear. Most, most of us are basically like kids who are both scared and hurt. And then we develop survival strategies on top of that. That's, that's right. all that's really going on. So I'm basically, you know, basically isn't quite the right word because it's very intricate, but I'm holding and providing love and security for the part of us that feels unsafe, for the part of us that feels scared. So I help an athlete get to a place where they are basically totally at peace, regardless of the environment, regardless of the outcome, which then gives them the platform and the forum within which they can perform without any kind of handbrake uh, psychologically. Mm. It, the, the, I just started working with an Olympic sailor new sport to me but such a great guy super talented he was at the last olympics and we're now getting him ready for japan for tokyo and it was so powerful because he gave me a couple of stories that he'd gone through you know when he was young which is really where all of this gets formulated and um i equated the way that he's currently sailing to like he's sailing with the governor on like you know if you drive a golf cart yeah. and you go downhill yeah you're picking up speed until the governor kicks in and there's sort of this automatic braking so psychologically most people live their lives like that there is an automatic way of self-protection that prevents people from accessing who they truly could quote unquote be if they would access their potential and that's why I get fired up is to be able to really access that for people. So this sailor, once he saw that, I mean, within, I think it was like his next big race, he went to the Pan American. Anyway, I think it was the Pan American was his next big event as part of the lead up, you know, to the trials and everything for the Olympics. And he got his first podium finish, like because he lifted the governor, which was basically 
an unconscious way that he was, unbeknownst to himself, being held back because he was not wanting to basically make a mistake, which everyone can relate to, especially if yeah. you're an athlete, right? There's a lot at stake. But if you're living in a world where you don't want to make a mistake, then you're constantly in this, this mild state of fear for a worst case scenario that hasn't happened yet, mm. which creates a lot of resistance. Now, if, if you recognize that to be able to access your potential, you need to be in more like the zone or flow state. Right. And then it actually becomes a bit self-fulfilling, right? Because he knows he's got greater potential, but he's not realizing it. So that creates frustration, which then puts more pressure, which is actually a greater form of tension and resistance. And so, you know, it's yeah. at that point, it's, uh, it's sort of a vicious cycle. Yeah. But anyway, so we break all of that. And um, yeah, I, I, I make it sound easy because I just love it. And it is easy to me now because I've gotten so many, you know, beautiful, um, flattering results with people where they find the state of freedom, they've got all the talent they need, and now they just don't have anything in the way of them uh, from expressing that fully. Yeah, amazing. So I get that there's individual things going on, but <clears throat> if there are some blanket things that people can do when they're in a high pressure situation, say having to make a public speech or mm -hmm. being on camera or, yeah, you know, yeah. even with this Instagram age, you got to turn the camera on yourself now. Yeah. And that was tough for me at first because I was just not used to seeing myself on camera and I'd record right. this thing like three or four times and I'm like, oh, my eyebrow looks funny or I'm not looking at the camera the right way. You know? yeah. So like there's all these situations. Yeah. And is it like, something that you can tell everyone that's listening right now that they can do that would help them for put sure. less pressure on themselves. I was going to point out your eyebrow, first of all. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, it's the left eyebrow. It's a little funky. It's I'm, kind of embarrassing. You know, honestly. I grew up watching The Rock on WWE. Uh -huh. You know, when he does the smell with The Rock is cooking thing. You know, I think I did that too many times in the mirror. Just My eyebrow got stuck that way. Yeah. See, our grandparents are right. You know, you pull a face and if the wind changes direction, it'll stick or whatever they used to say. Um, yes, I think it really comes down to all joking aside, like loving all aspects of ourselves, right? Which sounds cliche, but I use an expression. I say life will reveal, you know, sorry, life will present you with people and places to reveal where you're not free. So basically what that means is the opportunity that it is to be human is to recognize where are you triggered by anything? Because that is the gift to be able to see what is it that I'm saying about myself at a deeper level that has me respond in a way that creates some concern or fear. Now, what most people do with a concern or fear is they want to hide it, they want to mask it, they want to fix it, um, they want to improve it, versus like, imagine a kid who comes in and they're scared about something. As a parent, and I'm not one, so I can only speak from helping you know hundreds and hundreds of parents, and in, intuitively feeling into it. That kid doesn't want to be fixed. They want to be held. Another expression I use, I say the ego doesn't want to be healed, it wants to be held. Mm. So again, we start to get a bit gushy here, but I just love love. And I would assert, it's a bold statement, there are very few people who really understand what it means to be truly held and loved unconditionally. Because at some point in the genesis of our sort of growth as a kid, we get introduced to wrong, bad, not wanted, uh, failure, all of these expressions that then become associated with who we are. And that's really what I'm undoing, is helping somebody realize that where you're at is totally okay. And for somebody to really feel that, like 
that gives them permission to be flawed, first of all. That gives mm -hmm. them permission to be imperfect, which, first of all, isn't mine to grant, but I'm actually holding a space where they can grant it to themselves and go, okay, that's just where I'm at. And that, that is the sort of the blanket, I'd say, theme that I do use with every client is it's okay. It's okay. You're where you're at. You're who you're at. You're, you're done what you've done. You haven't done what you haven't done. And to truly embrace and accept 100% that you are precisely where you are in life. There's no mm. should, there's no could, there's no would have, there's no must, there's no need to. All of that language creates pressure. So when you bring that to an athlete and they become completely in, engaged in the present moment because they're no longer trying to either reconcile a history that they're judging or avoid a future that they're concerned about, which is how most people live their lives. To become fully embodied in this moment, that's power. Not in a controlling way, but where I feel fully present, I feel fully centered, I feel totally free. There's nothing that I am shameful of. There's nothing that I feel guilt about. And there's nothing that I'm scared or apprehensive about. So we reconcile time. So it starts to get kind of philosophical and a little esoteric, but really I am completely collapsing time for people. Where I, the expression again I use, I say, let go, don't know. Let go of the past and don't know about the future. And, that and then when the next you... step, you don't care and just live. Well, don't care is, is, a, is a subtle one. A lot of my athletes come up to me and like when they've had a bad outcome and they're like, oh, fuck, I just wish I didn't care so much. Mm. And that's a protective mechanism. It's basically saying I'm hurt. So I say, no, 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 I want you to care more. What I want you to actually reconcile and let go of is worry. And that's one of my teachings is the difference between care, which is heart-centered, this anatomically, I care, love, mm -hmm. Anatomically, I worry, psychological, right? So the worry is the obstacle to what we care about. Does that make sense? So I want to get people more heart-centered versus from the head up, which is where most people live their lives. They're thinking about too much. They're worried about what's going to happen. They're worried about what they did last time. And one of my baseball players is facing a pitcher who last time he went over, meaning he didn't get a hit. It could have been two months ago before, you know, he's refacing the same picture. But now he stands in the, the box, he steps in, and his brain is recalling an event where he had a disappointment, and now he's concerned about that repeating itself, which is human, but it's non-logical, because it's a completely different day. This, this, that moment in the history of the universe has never happened before. Yeah. More powerfully, if he had no memory, he would have no problem because he doesn't know what to be worried about. Yeah. So uh, as a joke, I tell people I give them conscious Alzheimer's, right? It's like being able to let go of everything that happened that has been, has been creating all of your fears. Because past hurt informs future fear is again one of my quotes that I use. So when we've had past disappointment, the brain, which is designed to predict and protect, is foreseeing the repetition of something that was hurtful, that was you know, embarrassing or disappointing, and now we're trying to avoid that, not realizing that what happened is completely past tense. And therefore, what I'm actually doing is creating a more increased likelihood by virtue of the fact that I'm projecting into the future something that's not even happened yet and now trying to avoid it. And that to me, when I really saw that mechanism, I recognized the madness and the futility of the way that the human brain works. One brain 
predicts an outcome based on past disappointments that it doesn't want to have happen, which is a protective mechanism, mm -hmm. totally human, it's common, but then the same brain does everything it can to avoid that outcome, forgetting that it created the projection. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ultimate Houdini, right? Totally. I'm going to tie myself in knots, unbeknownst to me, and then I've got to try and figure out how to get out of that. And then you wonder why people are exhausted or they need sort of substances to find some sense of relief. So I'm collapsing all of that. Gotcha. So <laughs> brilliant. I love it. But like, how the hell do you do that? You know, because it's so powerful, man. Like, let's say yeah. someone goes on stage to make a speech and yeah. a bomb and they start stuttering. And then the next time, yeah. you know, sure, we'd all love to forget about that previous experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know how the mind works. It's like, you're going to fail. You're going to stutter again. Yeah, Don't yeah, stutter. Yeah. Don't like you know, trip on the stage and all that. It's like, mm -hmm. it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's why I can feel the power of what you're saying. But like, yeah. how the hell do you get that chatter to stop? So let's use a case study. My first baseball player that I had, what I would consider a tangible result. It's the first season I got hired by this team. It was, I literally was looking at some notes. It was like an April 14th. So it was early in the season. The season starts beginning of April. So I think it was like our ninth, 10th game of the season. And he had gone almost the entire previous season without a home run. And this guy wasn't like small, you know, like even some of the small guys get five to six home runs. The big guys are getting 30 plus home runs yeah. in the season, right? So he would normally be pegged to get like a good 15, 16, somewhere in the middle okay. of the pack. But think of it. He's getting paid millions of dollars. He hasn't hit a home run for almost an entire season. The previous season, now we started the first. And he was getting frustrated. And by virtue of guys in the locker room, he was getting a lot of stick from his teammates, albeit in jest and fun, but it was nonetheless rubbing him the wrong way. Right. They're like, don't worry about it. You're not a power hitter, you know, but sort of teasing. Mm. But at the same time, it hurts, right? Yeah, and he's got the expectation that he has to hit so much in the stats to be and worthy of his contract. Stake, you know? it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, <coughs> family to support and pride and all of that. So... I can remember he was, he got to the field, like all guys, you know, they get there four or five hours. It's a long day playing baseball. It's not just the game, you know, guys right. are getting there many, many hours before. So he called me, I wasn't there. He called me from, from his car and he's sitting in the parking lot. And he was talking about how the fact that he hadn't had this home run and it was starting to really piss him off and it was just frustrating. So to get back to your question, I said to him, okay, what if I told you that for the rest of your career, you were never going to hit a home run. Now, I realize it's not what you want, but what I was doing, it was giving him access to a degree of freedom that he was not currently experiencing, which is to be totally okay with all outcomes. Mm. So to begin with, there's some resistance, right? Yeah, but dude, like I'm a major league baseball player, da, 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 and there's millions of dollars. I got it. But I said, could you be okay? Could you get to the place where if you never hit a home run for the rest of your career, you're going to be okay? And then I like to inject some humor. I said, oh, I'm going to have to call your mom, you know? So he got to the point where he said, you know what? It's okay. It's not what he wants. Again, it's a very powerful, you know, important distinction to realize when I'm giving people this worst case scenario for them to embrace, I'm not saying that's what I'm committed to, but I do need you to be able to integrate it. So he got to the place where I could feel that the relief. He's like, you know what? He stopped the pressure of this perceived future where he didn't have one, right? And so he was like, okay, mate, that is a possibility. In the whole realm of what is fully possible, yeah. it is possible, unlikely, that I would never hit another home run. And what he had previously 
prior to this conversation, where he was living is, he was not okay with that. So he was not at peace, he was not free. And when you're an athlete and you're not free and you're not at peace, you can't relax. And especially when it comes to power, if you're not relaxed, you're not gonna be able to like generate the speed and velocity and force to hit a home run in his case. So I kid you not, I'm not making this shit up. He, his second at bat that night, it was against St. Louis, boom, hits a home run. Now to me, that is not a coincidence. That is that he had psychologically, emotionally, energetically got to a place where he was totally okay with the outcome that previously he was always resisting and avoiding. Mm. He made space for it. Mm. It's one of my favorite quotes from the best golfer that ever lived, Jack Nicholas. He said, one of the most important parts of winning is being okay losing. Now he's not saying I want to lose, but he's okay losing. What that does is I now integrate loss as a possibility. For that reason, I'm no longer concerned about it, which allows me therefore to perform. Same happened to that baseball player. So now to go back to your question, if somebody has bombed and they've had stuttering and they've gotten nervous on stage, I would ask them to consider the same thing. Can you be okay being a nervous wreck on the stage? Mm. Could you get to a place, what if, and oftentimes they will have kids, you know, because normally I'm working with adults. Yeah. What if your child is in a Christmas carol, you know, or they're in the pantomime for the year and they start crying and they break down? How would you feel? They're like, oh my gosh, I just want to hold them. I'm like, great. Could you bring that to yourself? You're not trying to fix mm -hmm. them. You're not going, oh, how do I deal with my kid's anxiety? Mm -hmm. You know, like this is a, this is a sham. We got to make sure they don't cry next year. No, there's a degree of love and acceptance for that child, of course, based on the fact that they're a child, we're a lot more forgiving. Yeah. But I would invite people to bring that same degree of forgiveness to themselves, even if they're 20, 30, 50, 70 years old, because the part of you that is struggling is still that inner child mm. that is concerned about what do people think? Yes. It might be a trigger for the first time you got up in class. Now you're, I mean, I literally, I spoke at um, Twitter for a keynote, like um, the beginning of the year, and a few people contacted me afterwards to help them. And this is an executive, speaks all the time, super educated, highly eloquent, and yet struggles massively with public performance because we traced it back to a sports event where based on something that he did at the end of the game, they lost the game. Mm. And from that moment forth, at a very young age, he decided based on how the coach responded to him, which was not pleasant, you know, basically blamed him for the entire loss of the game. And, yada, you know, you can imagine the quintessential high school coach laying into a kid who then, as a sensitive being, decided I can never make a mistake ever again as it relates to any kind of performance. Mm. No pressure, right? And so here he is with all the resources, education, knowledge about his, his domain, struggling massively until we, we were able to reconcile, hold that kid and say, hey, you're a kid in a game you did the best you could and it didn't work out. If that was your son, what would you say to him? What would be your response? And he was like, well, I'd slap him on the ass and say, dude, don't worry about it, I love you. You know, it would be the energy of holding. And so that's really what I'm providing for people is that's the energy I bring and then inviting them to bring that same energy to themselves that is, okay, last time you did a presentation, you got nervous. You're not the first person to do that. Your armpits were probably sweaty. Maybe even people saw marks under your shirt. You know, you stuttered. You didn't get every great point across that you had planned to. Shocker, you know, welcome to being human. The question is not about perfecting all of that. 
can you be a big enough human being to make space for that part of you that didn't perform immaculately? And that is the access then to a lot, like a bandwidth that allows humans to be more human, which is then ironically the precursor to the absence of all of those fears. Because you're like, I'm okay with it. Oh, I love that. Total full self-acceptance. Yeah. I have a friend who is a, uh, a musician. Yeah. And his band blew up, became very famous. And, <coughs> excuse me, he told me that it was a, a big shock for him when the articles started coming out. Yeah. That were quoting people that, you know, he never met, talking shit about the band. And then right. the reviews, of course. And then the pressure of the second album. Yeah. And he uh, told me about this book that someone gave to him, which is this like thousand year old book of Jewish wisdom. Okay. And one of the exercises it says to do in this book is to practice, man, I'm forgetting the, the word, but like some, like a negative belief uh -huh. uh, that everyone else has about you and be okay with it. Yeah. So it says to imagine yourself coming to an old woman crossing the street Yeah. and you help her across the street. Yeah. And then the next day there's an article in the paper that says, Peter helps this old woman cross the street. Yeah. And you know that you helped her cross the street. And the exercise is that you're not caring about the article and what everyone else thinks, but yeah. just your own feeling that you helped her get across the street. Right. And right. then another scenario where you help the woman across the street and then the article comes out and it says, Peter Crone sexually assaults this older woman help like, right. you know, while she was just trying to cross the street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you being okay with those articles too, because you know yeah. in your heart that you actually helped her across exactly. the street and just getting really confident with yeah. what you know your intention was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that comes back to the word I had at the beginning, which is trust, mm. right? So yeah. I use the term, I'm a trust fund baby. Again, not because I was left a penny, um, but that I do trust life is way more powerful than any of us. And in ways that we don't understand, things are unfolding in the precise order that they're supposed to be. Now, subjectively, it might not feel like that. It may not be what I personally want. But for me to be in harmony with life, like I say, I have an intimate relationship with reality. Like, of course, I'm going to respond if things need to be dealt with. You know, if there was, God forbid, like an accident or I was in a difficult situation where maybe someone is being life-threatening towards me, I'm not just going to sit there and do kumbaya. You know, it's like I may need to, quote unquote, be physically uh, active in defending myself. But psychologically, if we can get to a place where we're not worried about anything, you know, it's one of my favorite quotes. One of my first teachers uh, was just in a book, uh, the guy had already passed, called Krishnamurti. He had, there's a meme that I send to almost all of my clients at some point in the time that we're working together when they get ready to really understand it. He just said this. He said, this is my secret. I don't mind what happens. Mm. Now, if you can feel into that, there is just nothing but freedom. Now, it goes in the face of many of my executives, like I'm working with, you know, billionaires to pro athletes to high-end entertainers, all of whom we could assert are successful because they're driven. They want something. So I'm all about that, but I think the two can coexist, which is I don't mind what happens and I'm committed to something, right? So that is where, again, I use the expression of fully committed, totally unattached. And that to many people seems like a paradox. And, and yet, to me, it is the most powerful place to live, which is I am totally okay with what un unfolds because it's not for me to say. Life, life 
is doing what life does. And sometimes it can be challenging. And I have all the sympathy and compassion for people who are, who are generally going through difficult times. And if we aren't in conflict with that, then we're not going to be suffering. There may be things to deal with, but suffering as a psychological component of being human is to me completely unnecessary. I'm not talking about physical pain. You know, if somebody stubs a toe, like a mild level to somebody who hasn't had food for a, a couple of weeks, you know, that is also happening on the planet. Um, that will generate pain. And it is a form of physical suffering. But the suffering I'm talking about psychologically is what I'm reconciling, mitigating for people, is to realize that the degree to which we resist reality is the degree to which we suffer. If we are saying, I don't want things to be the way they are, whether it be the guy, girl, who just cut in line in traffic and that's mm -hmm. apparently pissing you off, to the way that your spouse squeezed the toothpaste, to you know some bigger issues about how your in-laws are telling you to parent your kids and all the things that people are really dealing with in life. If you resist any of that, then I promise you, you will suffer. And that is the opportunity to find freedom is, as I said earlier, where are things basically revealing your frustrations, your fears, your concerns, your beliefs of inadequacy? That's, that's what I'm working with people is to help them fundamentally see there is nothing wrong with you or life. I'm not saying it's ideal and I'm not condoning some behaviors, but it's not wrong. It is the way it is. And if I can find peace with that while still being committed to what I want to create for my life, then you're in a powerful place. You're certainly not going to be having any kind of dis-ease psychologically, which then hopefully will also be preventing any kind of physiological disease down the line. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's my commitment to helping people find total peace, total freedom, because they discovered what it means to be in complete harmony with the way things are and stop the fight, which is ultimately all internal. Mm, yeah. Uh, Phil Knight, founder of Nike. Yeah, yeah. In his 20-year journey founding Nike, he barely pays himself a penny. You know, there's yeah. points where he can barely meet payroll, and his business is about to go under several times. And just when he gets his first big athlete, Prefontaine, yeah. tragedy strikes, and he gets hit by a car. And, right. You know, the business is just kind of like going on seat of the pants. And then one day it goes public, and he wakes up, and he's worth $180 million in cash. Uh -huh. Wow. At that point, he said he had one wish. And his wish was something he would never be able to do. And that would be to go back to the beginning and start it all over again. Right, 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 right. And yeah. then he realized at that point that it was the journey that was yeah. the price. It wasn't that financial number. Yeah. It wasn't that feeling of success at the end. It was having yeah. that incredible 20-year journey of struggle and pain and yeah. frustration and having the challenges. Yeah. And I think that really is like the spice of life. You know, That's what I love about your work is it. Yeah, points that out to people that this yeah. is the goods. This is the fun stuff. What we're in presently, every single moment. Yeah, is what it's all about. It, it reminds me of a workshop I was doing many years ago, and um, you know, somebody it was a very flattering question because they said, "I've never met anybody like you who you just seem so content. You seem so at peace." Like, and they said, "Like, how do I get to where you've gotten to?" And it was sort of. It was really in jest. I said, well, this is my suggestion. Fall head over heels with somebody in love, and then I hope they leave you and you're devastated and you have a broken heart. Like, because that was just my quote unquote journey. But mm, in that, that happened process, to me. Really? Yeah. yeah. 
So I think, you know, heartbreaking is heart opening, mm. right? And so to your point, I think the greatest, one of the greatest experiences that we can have as human beings is the transcendence of constraint. Now, regardless, so to your point about Phil Knight's story, what was his transcendence? Maybe it was scarcity. I don't know anything about his upbringing, but maybe he came from a family where there were, you know, there were no means and it was a, it was a poor upbringing. And so his quote unquote psychological cage he was stuck in was that he would want to get away from poverty, right? Again, I'm, this is all perhaps totally inaccurate. His parents could have been multimillionaires. I don't know. I'm guessing. But the point is what he got to quote unquote overcome by getting to, you know, this $180 million payday was the joy of overcoming the concern, the constraint, the obstacle, the limitation. So that's why I said earlier, it's sort of like this ultimate cosmic Houdini act, right? Where we arrive with these constraints or fears, they're synonymous. And the game of this dimension, as far as I'm concerned, being human is how can we transcend, basically break free from that which we weren't aware was confining us, mm. right? Again, now we get more mythical, but to me, it's like we're spiritual beings confined by fear. The gods are like, we've got the perfect dimension for you. It's called planet Earth. We'll send you there because you have to face all of your fears so that you can transcend them and break free. And no that's doubt. the way I look at this dimension. It's not about amassing more money. It's not about amassing more followers. It's not about having the best body, the most best looking spouse, the biggest home. That's the human circumstantial game, right? Again, I, I use this on a radio show. I said, it's not about circumstantial comfort. It's about spiritual evolution. And most people are playing the circumstantial comfort game. Where if this is going back to what we started earlier, the one day scenario, yes, I'm trying to get everything around me perfected because I'm under the impression that when everything around me is perfected, then I will feel good. I'm like, no, it's quite the antithesis of that. It is regardless of what's going on around you, can you discover where you don't have freedom such that you can break free in spite of whatever's going on around you? That to me is real success because we both know, and I certainly do, many people who have saturated their resources, like literally multi-billionaires who are still struggling with the inner fight that is the human you know, arc of somebody's awakening. They are still stuck in these deep-seated beliefs of inadequacy, insecurity, or scarcity. Some of the times that's what's created their external success as a compensation. You know, I remember one guy from Australia I was doing a retreat in Thailand he was one of the wealthiest people in Australia. He came, but he was so sick and he was just not in a good way, psychologically or physiologically, yet had billions of dollars at stake. Um, and it all came back to, he remembered that as a kid, he saw his mom working on her knees, scrubbing floors as part of her third job. And he made a decision. He said, I will never be poor. And at that point it became, now it might seem like this was great motivation for him then to create this external fortune but he was still that little boy internally coming from a place of scarcity did he have fear that he was going to lose his money even with that much exactly mm. because it's again like you make it but then it's like somebody who wants to lose weight when they lose weight if they have a dialogue that they're overweight yeah then they're concerned about everything that's around them that is a trigger for how they put on weight right so they're not free at all they now just have a different shaped body but internally they're in the same state of dis-ease or dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment so he was still energetically in a place of poverty, in a state of stress, even though externally he had all the trappings. But his relationship to life was, I'm coming from a place of concern, fear, yeah. 
And that's this, right? This is where I'm in a state of fight or flight, even though my external circumstances are the actually embodiment of what I said I wanted. Right. You can't enjoy it if you're still in that state. Yeah. Now, at the same time, there is some of that that got him there. Yes. But yeah, might have had a happier journey on the way. It's a fine yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fine line. Because as I said, that's why for me, yes, for sure, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to touch millions and millions of people's lives. And a byproduct of that is going to be some sort of business success for me too, right? Like yeah. obviously I've done a lot of podcasts. People have been very complimentary about the fact that I've given away so much free content, but I'm also, you know, going to create courses and books yeah. and things that I also can benefit from. Yeah, you know, and which you want I, them to be successful in I, a financial way. Yes. It feels good to be on a bestseller list. And, and just to buy stuff is there. fun, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, I've flown around on private jets. Like, I mean, I don't know if I'll get to that point, but that would be fun. And yeah. let's, let's play that game, you know? Right. But it's not that I need to get to that to feel good about myself. Yeah. Whether it happens or not, like my guy with the home run, whether, it, you know, he got a home run or not, he found freedom. So I want to find peace and freedom where I'm at. And let's play the game of what's possible on this incredible planet with all of these resources, yeah. making a difference in people's lives. Um, hopefully shifting the course of humanity, raising people's consciousness. That's the game I'm playing. I know I've touched many people's lives, so I could quote unquote feel good already, but there's many people still suffering. And if I can share something that even today in this conversation touches somebody's life, helps them shift the way they relate to themselves, their parents, their, their spouse, their coworkers, that gives them a new glimpse of what is available, then that's a fulfilling day for me. Love that. Love yeah. That. And so totally committed, completely unattached is how you will pursue this next yes. venture, it sounds like. Yeah. I love that quote. Now, I wanted to dive back to breakups for a minute. You said okay. you went through a tough breakup, <laughs> and I know that's yeah. something so many people can relate to. Yes. And when you're in that space of having just like been dumped or cheated on or whatever it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the physical pain you can, you can, mm -hmm. the mental pain turns into physical. It's so intense, you know? Yeah, yeah. If someone's out there or, or it comes to you and is in that moment of despair, what advice do you give them to find the teachings in that yeah. and to get out of it? Because it's such a funk that can hold you down all across other areas of your life, too. For sure. Um, and before I would get to advice, I would just come from a place of love, you know, mm. like going back to what I said earlier. I want to hold people. Now, that may sound weird. I mean, sometimes it can be literal. Like, you know, there's, I mean, there's the hugging sate, right? Arma. I mean, she's got millions of people like who just line up for hours just to get a hug. Now, yeah. if that is not a reflection of how desperate people are just to be held, then I don't yeah. know what is, right? Yeah, I've been invited by multiple different people to go get a hug from this woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that to me speaks to what I said earlier that I feel deep down in our core, uh, of what it means to be human, there is an aspect, an aspect, a part of us that is craving unconditional love. Mm. Um, and so that would be my first offering is it's hug okay. yourself or no, if I'm with someone, that... you said if someone comes to me, what would be my advice? Oh, the you first know? thing you would do is give them a hug. I give them a hug. You Whether, give them a hug. I, yeah. It could be literal, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be literal. It would be energetic. I would okay. listen. I don't think most people understand what it means to listen. Mm. And parents particularly. Why do kids always say, why, why, mummy, 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 like over and over to the point that the parent gets pissed off? Because the kid doesn't feel heard. The kid actually didn't get a fulfilling response to what they were asking. Now, this is no slight on parents. It's easy for me to sit here 
without kids and make these like blase statements, but I still want parents to get something powerful from it, which is, yes, I get that you've got food to make, you've got laundry to do, you've got your own business to run. And so to sit there and really be with your child, it's probably not practical, Yeah. but just consider when you can, you will create a complete circuit with that kid in a way that is both fulfilling for them and you. And it will also improve the way that you communicate. Like, cause parents also ask me, why do my kids not listen to me? That's a whole nother conversation. Got it. But anyway, what I'm saying is a kid, whether it be literal or the kid energetically that's within us, is asking to be held and loved. That's my first port. It's almost like the quintessential mother energy, which is just all embracing. When a kid falls down and they have a boo-boo and they scrape their knee, they don't want the advice. They're not like, ah, you know, I noticed the way you were taking that corner was a little quick, given the quality of rubber on the shoes that you're wearing. Like, what's that going to do for the kid? That would be advice, right? That's very masculine. That's like, okay, this is the strategy, which at times is helpful. But when it's an emotional response to life, what's actually being asked for is love and holding, as far as I'm concerned. So whoever I'm with, whatever they're going through, that's where I always start. Once somebody feels safe, and they feel held, now we can start to get into the analytics. Now we can understand, okay, well, why, why were you struggling on the stage? Why did you feel nervous? Because it's okay. See, once they're okay with it, because if somebody comes to me and their problem is anxiety, they start to become anxious about their anxiety, and now they've got judgment around it. First of all, we want to make a space. It's totally okay. You are one of billions of people who experience anxiety. And once they are okay with their own anxiety, what happens? <sighs> they, they breathe. Yeah. And anxiety starts to dissipate. They will literally start to go in a different part of their nervous system, parasympathetic, which is rest and rejuvenate. And so now, they've, in embracing anxiety, they've actually helped to mitigate anxiety. When we're not okay with something, we're creating tension around it. So I start with that. So in a breakup scenario, maybe they need to be okay with feeling the pain? Yes, it's okay. Mm. It's totally okay. Like, totally sad. I get it. Where, where it starts to get slippery, let's say somebody's been in a breakup now situation for a long period of time. Now they've gone out of what I would consider to be an organic feeling, and now it's become a psychological emotion. So to have feelings of grief. When my dad died, he went to work, didn't come back. If I hadn't expressed feelings, that equally would have looked a little weird, right? So to feel sad, to feel confused, to feel hurt, no one's going to begrudge me those feelings as a human being. We're sentient beings. We have feelings. But if two years from after my dad had passed, I'm now drinking heavily or got into some heavier drugs because my narrative is like, fuck life. It's unfair, mm. you know? There ain't no fucking God, and I get into this anger. That's not feelings anymore. That's where I haven't reconciled. I wasn't held sufficiently like, to be able to feel properly, to process that experience. And now it's become an accumulation of unresolved feelings over time, and now I'm emotional. My hurt is now manifesting as bitterness, anger, whatever it might be, right? So that cascade is where most people have gotten to because they were never fully held, they were never fully heard, they were never fully loved. Mm. And so whatever they were going through at the time didn't get reconciled. So if someone's going through a breakup, 
I'd hold space. I'd let them have all the feelings, let it out, like really fucking snot and all and yeah. cry. And, that's, and if they don't have someone like you, though, should they be journaling or should they? Yes, yeah. if I'm not actually present in their life, which of course is going to be the most part, um, I think just even sharing this and being, you know, hearing somebody say it's okay. It's okay to have all your feelings. Mm-hmm. So I, I personally, when I went through a lot of stuff by myself, I would love to write. Ideally, they have someone in their life, you know, a best girlfriend or a best boyfriend that yeah. they can talk to and give yourself permission to feel. But get out of the realm of psychological time, meaning where I suffered with my breakup was my mind was starting to think I'm never going to meet anyone like that again. Now, now I'm actually avoiding what I'm really feeling, which is scared and hurt and sad. And it's starting to creep into this sort of doomsday future that now is manifesting as beyond feelings is now suffering. And getting into identity, would you say, right? I, I, I've heard yeah. you say in another interview that people say things like, I am depressed, yes. instead of saying, like, I am experiencing feel, feelings of yeah, depression. Yeah. And they start to take that on as a personal identity. Yes. And that's a recipe for. Yeah, because that's suffering. now how we start to define ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So that's really what I'm undoing. Again, I'm not like trying to solve people's problems. I say I dissolve them, right? So much of the dissolution process is to let go of all of the constructs that we've amassed over time, starting in childhood that made us think that we are a certain way, right? That who I am is not enough. Mm. That who I am is a failure. And so now that's where we become associated with past events, like that's who we are. And then it's natural human tendency to either do one or one or the other, try and overcome that, you know, so you become a perfectionist, a people pleaser, like a a self-improvement, like addict, you know, because you're trying to overcome something or you go right into it, right? So if no one cares and I'm a failure, now you get into you know, that slippery slope of substance abuse and perhaps you know, become homeless eventually. Because the same mechanism, the same narrative, the same dialogue is driving both behavioral adaptations. Mm. One is the, uh, the antidote, quote unquote, the fix for it, but still being defined by it. You're becoming the perfectionist. The other is like, I'm actually just gonna buy right into it and woe is me, and I'm just a failure, and no one gives a shit, right? But either way, they're being defined by something that is a narrative that got created from an event which has got nothing to do with who you are, it's just what happened. Mm. It's, um, <laughs> with clients who've worked with me for a while, I like to bring a lot of humor, as you, you know, hopefully you're, you're t- seeing. Um, and so if they, you know, we jump on a phone call periodically, and they're telling me about what has transpired in the last few days or the last week, and let's say they've had a tough week. And they're like, da, 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 da. And then this happened, you know, and I went into the office. And, oh my God, this blah, blah, blah. And this person hadn't done this job. And then, you know, I come home and my wife and this and my dad, dad, whatever is going on in their life. And everybody's got a lot, but I'll listen, you know, 15, 20 minutes of whatever's yeah. going on. And then I'll say, you know, I only do this with people I've worked with for a while. I say, okay, you know, I love listening. I consider myself to be an impeccable listener. So let me just make sure I got everything that you're telling me. Mm-hmm. So what you're telling me is some stuff happened. Did I get it? <laughs> Did I get it right? Like, so, so I really think I understood this. Some stuff happened. Is, is that it? Yes. And, you know, and they're yeah. like, you're such an ass. Yeah. Because you know? my point is, like, I get everything that transpired. And, of course, this is why I said it's only with people I've worked with for a while. My point is, you're amazing. 
And we've gotten beyond the fact that you're a victim of circumstance. It's just stuff. It doesn't it's affect just them at their core, at their heart. It's just stuff. Unless you literally need to go to the hospital, in which case, don't call me, call yeah. 911. Yeah. Then there's nothing going on other than your reaction to stuff, mm. which is treasure. Because now we can see, okay, why did event over here cause response over here? Oh, That's yeah. where we get to see. It's not because of that that yeah. you got upset. It's because that is a trigger for something that's still unresolved in you. If we can resolve that, now you find peace with the next time that happened, right? So, oh my God, I was on stage to, you know, use the example you've used a couple of times. I got so nervous. I was stuttering. I was sweating. I felt like such an idiot, blah, blah, blah. Okay. First of all, that's okay. You know, this is a big, you know, I think somewhere I heard people are much more scared of like public speaking than death or yeah. something stupid. Yeah. So it's very commonplace. It's okay. But now let's look at what was the concern? What is the fear? What is the worst case scenario? You know, and it's going to be in the realm of, you know, people aren't going to like me. I might get like, you know, made fun of. What if like I get a, you know, lose my job? You know, it's all in the realm of personal security. And the antidote to that is realizing what I said earlier, trust that I don't know what life has in store for me, but I'm going to trust that I'm going to do the best I can. And chances are, even the most incredible public speakers don't nail it. You know, it's like I've done a lot of keynotes. Yeah. I feel very comfortable speaking. But I could go back and psychoanalyze my presentation and go, oh, you know, I forgot about that point. I mean, I've done this for like 20 plus years. I'm not going to be able to talk about everything in a 45, 60 minute presentation, right? So it's to give ourselves permission to be human, to not have to get everything perfect all the time and to be able to recognize that nobody does. So there's a sense of commonality. And to, to at that point, just give, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that I'm, I'm at every moment of life doing the best I can, as is everybody else. And for that reason, I'm going to get rid of judgment of myself, judgment of others, and trust that everything is unfolding as exactly as it's supposed to. And that's part of the joy because I'm not trying to control it. I'm not trying to figure it out. I want to be surprised by life. I want to let things unfold in a way that I don't have to be in control of. It's, it's much more liberating to know that life's, you know, got a much better handle on this than I do. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's what I would encourage people to find is this just sense of liberation that they don't have to get it perfect. They don't have to figure it all out and that there's fundamentally nothing wrong with them, even if they're bumbling through life a little bit. It's like, oh my gosh, I, <laughs> again, it reminds me of this story. I was in Whole Foods. A friend of mine who I'd seen on um, a couple of workshop circuits and he came in and he just, you could tell he was frazzled, you know, and, and uh, I said, you, you, do, you doing okay, bud? And he's like, oh, he said, I'm just so frustrated. And I'm like, well, what, what's going on? He's like, I still keep getting stressed. <laughs> and I said, wait, what? So you're, you're frustrated about the fact that you're getting stressed. And he's like, yeah. And I said, oh my God, like, dude, that's embarrassing. I said, I don't know anyone who gets stressed. Again, <laughs> just playing with them. And I said, that's, that's like, that's something you really got to work on. You know, and he's like, I know, I know. And I'm like, dude, I'm messing with you. Like everybody gets stressed. I said, if you could just find humor and acceptance around it, like you would actually relieve yourself of the stress. Like whatever you went through, it's okay. It's okay. 
And immediately he started laughing. He's like, dude, I'm just so hard on myself. I'm like, I got that. Like, I could see that. So again, it's just making space for all of our human idiosyncrasies. We're going to have feelings. We're going to have emotions. And it's okay. The bigger the bandwidth to make space for all of the feelings, the irony is the less we tend to have the stressful, difficult feelings. Because I'm okay with it. It's okay. Oh, I'm just a little tired. I'm a little bit cranky. No worries, you know. But as soon as we resist something, then that feeling doesn't get to just pass through. Yeah, what you resist persists. Yes. Yeah. And people resist a lot. Yeah. So how about you personally? Are there things yeah. that you're still working on, even after doing all this work? Triggers that come up for you, and you're like, "Whoa, where'd that come from?" Um, I mean, I feel very fortunate that I, I still have human feelings, but the difference is I'm not resisting them. Mm. And I actually now because my more perfect form of me when I was younger, meaning that was the adaptational um, <clears throat> response to a concern of like, you know, like how did I look to people? Um, I wouldn't express myself all the time. Whereas now I actually get joy in like, you know, screaming like, damn it, or whatever it might be. You know, if like I've done something, especially in the realm of sports, I love to compete. So for me, it's like if I don't perform as well as I could, at that particular moment. It doesn't create fear, it doesn't create anxiety, but I, there's actually a joy in like just expressing like a grunt, you know, versus like pretending that like, no, it's okay, it's okay, yeah. no, I'm fine. Be okay like, with lighting it loose. Yeah, it's like, yeah. ah, fuck, you know, but there's, it, it's, it's, it's fun, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, so then emotions or feelings start to become joyful. Mm -hmm. um, it might seem weird, but it's like I was in London um, and I'd gone to this, uh, I was actually there shooting movies with our, our previous men's, uh, mentioned celebrities. And um, we were on a hiatus for a weekend and I went to have a lunch with a girlfriend of mine who had gone to college with many years before. And we were in a pub and her phone rings, she picks it up, her whole face just goes ashen white and she starts bawling, like crying. And I'm sitting there watching and obviously it's whatever she's hearing is not great news. But the weirdest thing is there was such a, <laughs> it may sound bizarre, but I, I was actually jealous of how deep she was feeling something because mm. it was so beautiful. And she got off the phone and it was so profound how in touch she was with whatever she was processing, which was uh, her dad had called and his dad, her grandfather, who she was incredibly close to had just passed. And, I think at the time why it hit me so hard is because I wasn't so good at expressing my feelings back then. I was much younger and she just had no choice in that moment. And plus being a woman, you know, a woman, most women are much better at expressing their feelings. Yeah. And so there was this recognition of something so beautiful in the full expression of the sadness that she was having at that yeah, moment. Yeah, and able to let it out right Yeah, then. and it was so yeah. beautiful. So mm. I don't really feel like there's any traps now in me. I, I yeah. don't know what could be around the corner. Maybe I get triggered by something. But, you know, I feel blessed to be as free as I am. I feel fortunate to be at peace with whatever's going on in my life. And I allow my feelings. It's fun, you know. It's um, to, give, to give yourself permission to feel whatever it is, you know, from the extremes of joy and ecstasy to the, to the extremes of devastation and disappointment. Yeah. It's okay. It's human it's, to feel. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's liberating. It's, it's, mm. it's, 
it's joyous to feel like this is why kids are like they're so free right because right they, they fall over and, and it's yeah. like it's like they're dying you know like the, <laughs> yeah. the, the the expression of tears and screaming yeah you know but then they get up and they're being held and they see their sibling you know with a tricycle and they run over and they want to play on that and that's the best thing that ever happened you know and they they don't have this accumulated unexpressed feelings and mm. i think humans are just walking around with what i call emotional uh, indigestion <laughs> they, yeah love that afraid they, to let it go they haven't yeah. processed so much because they were either not given the security to do it or they weren't in an environment where they felt safe to do it and so it's just this sort of drips in a bucket over time and now this bucket is at the brim and then it can be anything outside of you that triggers you to get upset because there's all of this unexpressed emotion and i'm with my work giving people the freedom to just express it's okay love that let it out yeah so you've got a book in the works and some courses coming out which yeah. is so exciting because coaching with you is not the cheapest you know you've been doing this <laughs> right, for a long right. time yeah but i know people are going to want to hear more so your website is bealive.com yes Such or just my name peterkrohn.com peterkrohn.com and yeah. on instagram you're Peter Crone official correct c-r-o-n-e yes for spelling a crone yeah 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 and sign up for peter's email list he's going to be dropping some amazing bombs on there yeah letting people know when the book is ready and the courses are ready yeah yeah yeah. and no, thanks excited. for sharing so much with us and going deep with us on the show my Man, friend it's a pleasure stuff this is the type of episode i'm personally going to listen to for five <laughs> time to get all the takeaways yeah. and unfold this. I feel like I just got some free coaching from you it's, with all these insights. It's an occupational hazard and especially at the beginning you know it's beautiful to see how much you care and how much you yeah. want to do a good job. And, and it ended up perfect because people are yeah. going to learn and see yeah. you know how to release themselves from expectation yeah. just how they get to see in this moment yeah. at the beginning of the show. And I think to that point if people can really make the distinction between caring and worrying you know, like mm. we, as I said, we're sentient beings, anatomically heart-centered, we come from love. But we develop concerns because of disappointments and shortcomings and what we hear and the way that people speak to us, certainly our parents, which again is no slight on parents, they're doing the best they can. But we are nonetheless designed over time to protect ourselves. And that's when we start to worry. And worry is the same as apprehension, concern, fear, even anxiety, right? So that belongs in this one domain, this one bucket of human survival. But if we can start to let go of the concerns and tap more into our caring nature, that I love myself sufficiently, that I'm gonna give myself permission to, to try, even if there is quote unquote what is perceived failure, which is, is perceived, it's not actual, you just, something didn't happen, right? But to give myself permission to be human, to feel everything that I gotta feel, that is, that is the growth that is available to us as human beings to go full circle to how we started this. I think one of the most fulfilling ways to live our life is to become aware of our constraints and then transcend them, right? That is the ultimate evolution of a human spirit is to see where am I confined? Where am I limited through perception? And how can I step into a domain that is on the other side of that? to discover a greater sense of freedom, a greater sense of possibility, and invariably this greater sense of joy for what it means to be alive. Love it. All right, so go to BeAlive.com right now. <laughs> Follow Peter on Instagram, Peter Crone Official. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Oh, you're so yeah, welcome. Pleasure stuff. to be with you, my friend. All yeah, right. Much love. Thanks so much for watching. If you want to hear a story that's even wilder than that one, click here. You only have five seconds, though. Five, four, three, two, one, go!